Hello everyone, happy new year. Welcome to Talk Racing to Me, featuring one of the legends of our industry, Hall of Famer, Shug McGehee. I must admit we were on the thing for about over an hour and I just thoroughly enjoyed asking him a variety of questions, you know, about the industry itself, about um, his relationship with the Phipps's, about his career and what he hopes to be remembered by. It was quite the chat and I very, very much enjoyed listening to him, to his stories, to his experience, to his advice. He's, you know, had over multiple decades in the industry, so it was an absolute wealth of knowledge. So I thought, who better to kick off the new year with than someone as well-respected and liked within the thoroughbred industry as Suge McGahee. I started off by asking him about the newly turned three-year-olds, if he had any Colts that he's hoping to place uh, on the Kentucky Derby trail, hoping to get that next Kentucky Derby win aboard after, of course, Orb in 2013, or if he had any fillies for the Oaks. Well, uh, I mean, I'm more inclined with the Oaks than I am the Derby. I mean, you always like to keep <coughs> keep that option open. I mean, I think I got some decent Colts, but there's not not up very far along. Um, you know, so it might not be it might not be Derby situation, but it could pick up later on down the line. I mean, that would be wonderful. I know that you wouldn't put a horse into Kentucky Derby if you didn't think that they had a very no. strong chance or it was the right thing to do for them. No, you're right about that. So do you have any names for us, horses, that we can keep an eye out for? I know that lots of people always enjoy, you know, following the horses as they turn three or even just horses that are just getting started in their career. Well, I got that horse, Judge Davis. He finished third in the Nashua. You know, I gave him a little bit of time off and he's ready to start, you know, uh, start back. Um, you know, so like I say, he might be a little bit behind. Uh, I've got a horse running this weekend, his first time starter called Trending. That acts like he's okay. I'm going to run him a mile the first time. Um, some of them are grass horses, Naomi, but uh, let me just kind of go down through here. Trending. What do you think of putting a horse out? on a mile for a first-time start? Because I know it's always a bit of a tricky distance for these youngsters to go on their first asking. I got no problem with it. Um, you know, it's a big old lanky horse that uh, I think wants to run run a distance of ground, and I think that uh, he'd probably get lost sprinting here, you know, the way that, the way this track goes. So I think going a mile is fine. I think he'll be fit enough. We'll just have to see if he's good enough. <laughs> Well, that's supposed uh, to be a question for all of them, isn't it? Yes, exactly. That's kind of where I stand with that. Um, Naomi, I'm going down through here. I don't really see too much else. Oh, you're talking about some turf horse. I, well, we know that you know how to train a turf horse. I mean, lure comes to mind. <laughs> so they're exciting too, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm fine with any. I mean, I remember when I first started training, and people used to kid me. You know, you can't train a turf horse, and I got lure, and he won two Breeders' Cups. So, you know, and then we've, for some reason, we've had quite a few uh, turf horses as we, as we went along that were, you know, ended up being pretty accomplished horses. Uh, you know, obviously, 
a two dirt two turn dirt horse is what you're kind of looking for, but I got no problem with the, with the, with the dirty. I mean, with the turf either. So either one of them, either one of them's fine with me as long as they can run. <laughs> and and how would you characterize the the increase in sort of the turf program in the USA? Because you've been around for so long, you must have seen it completely change. Well, it, you know, it has changed. I mean, there's a lot more emphasis on turf racing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of big stakes for turf races that, you know, except for really for Breeders' Cup, there really wasn't, um, you know, when I started out. And, you know, I mean, there's been a big influence in, you know, horses coming from Europe, uh, not only race horses, but stallions and that kind of stuff. We sent a lot of mares over there. Um you know, and have been bred to European horses and some of them, you know, a lot of the protégés have, have shipped back here, bears too, you know. So, um, you know, I think a lot of the people with that have started putting more emphasis on turf racing and, you know, it's so hard to get a, uh, really hard to get a, you know, a, a two-turn dirt race to, to even go. I mean, we're in one today, a maiden race has got, got six horses in it and you know turf race would have 10 or 12. Yeah that's a similar uh, situation where I'm situated at Laurel and and the Pimlico. The turf races are always very very deep and a lot of people you know love having those turf horses and perhaps the dirt racing is you know obviously it's the main product in the US but isn't filling as strongly. Would you say that's possible because we still have a lot of dirt races and perhaps the fall crops are declining? Jaime the seven eight phone got them mile and a half. Um, say it again. I have to, I'm still getting one out. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I know that you're working. I, I was saying, do you feel like perhaps the dirt race is not going or not being as deep fields is due to that? You know, some of the fall crop is decreasing. We still have a lot of these dirt races, and turf is becoming a lot more popular. Yeah, I mean, obviously, with the fall crops uh, being down. I think it does take away from the dirt racing a little bit because, you know, you look at, you know, some of the farms. I mean, I know, you know, like with uh, Claiborne Farm, they they like to put a lot of emphasis on, you know, with their stallions and, and their mares, with, you know, dirt racing. And, you know, they don't have as many foals and we don't have as many horses to, to be running on the dirt. And it's a little bit difficult to be, to try to put a lot of emphasis on breeding for the turf and, uh, I mean, for the dirt and, um, instead of, you know, because you got, you know, you feel like that, uh, maybe the races won't, won't be as available as they would be on with turf racing. I mean, you know, I've gotten a lot more involved in, in, uh, buying, <clears throat> buying at the sale in the last year or so. And, you know, we've bought both, but there's always been, been in my mind, a little bit of emphasis on, on turf, um, just because I know that the horses have a lot more, you know, opportunity to run, even even with your two-year-old now. I mean, we used to not have in New York any two-year-old race until September. Then it was, we'd have one race maybe at Saratoga, and then maybe we'd have one turf race before Saratoga. Well, now there's a whole lot more emphasis on starting the turf early in New York. And, 
<clears throat> you know, and and to leading into to uh, the Saratoga, where there's a big emphasis on it, and um, you know, then into the fall. Of course, I think that probably, you know, the, the Breeders' Cup has had a little bit to do with that because of the info, you know, because of especially like the uh, Future Stars Day on Friday, you know, there's there's turf turf stakes, and then you know on Saturday too they got turf sprints. You know, they've got the mile, they got the mile and a half. Yeah, they got you know a Philly race which they used to not have, and um, so I think people have got are looking at those opportunities. And, you know, I think that a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the owners are, that are, you know, especially some of these big limited partnerships are buying Phillies, basically Phillies, but some Colts too in Europe to bring back over here and to utilize, you know, with our purse money and with the, with the more turf racing than there is where you're not seeing them come, you know, to run on the dirt. No, I mean, when you're looking at buying horses from Europe, you tend to think that they're more specialized or more geared uh, bred towards the turf as well. Uh, quickly going back to the fact that you were saying you are buying at the sale as well. I'm assuming that you're uh, looking at yearlings or would you also buy the two-year-olds or more so just the yearlings because you said you're a little bit more geared towards the turf? Well, I bought a couple of uh, two-year-olds this year. One of them was an upstart. She's run twice and won twice, both on the dirt. And I bought a noble mission um, who's turned out now, but he, he'll be he'll be turf when he comes back, or Tapita, one of the two. So, And with the yearlings, we bought, um, you know, quite a variety of, um, you know, war fronts, uh, who are primarily turf, firm turf. Um, you know, one of Amer- American feral fillies, a half-sister to Echo Zulu, who American vet feral goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of variety that we've looked at, but I've also tried to, you know, I've also tried to think that you know, we have to buy things that are going to have the opportunity to run. So we sort of, you know, varied, you know, what type of pedigrees we bought. Yeah. And we'll get to some of the Hall of Fame champions that you've trained in a second. But of course, with that decade's worth of experience, what is it that you look for in these yearlings? Well, I have to say that the yearlings that we bought for Joe Allen this year, my son and Dr. David Priest did a very, very good job of short list, short listing them for us. And every, every one that we bid on, we bought. And, um, you know, we liked what, what, what we saw. And, you know, that's, you know, the ball American Pharaoh for a million four or something down to, uh, you know, some others in the four to five, you know, bought a candy ride colt for eight fifty, And, um, you know, it, that horse could be either. He could be dirt or, dirt or turf. But, you know, basically what I like to look at, look for, was one is where they were raised. And then two, you know, then 
I like also, you know, I mean, obviously you want to look at the athlete, uh, what they look like and the soundness-wise. Of course, now there's such a, a big em- emphasis on x-rays and, uh, you know, scoping. So, you know, that's all involved in it. I don't think that we're quite is um, uh, in tune to the betting as a lot of these people are, and, and I don't think we need to be. Um, you know, obviously you want a good scope, and you don't want any drastic, drastic things that are wrong, but, um, you know, I think that we kind of did a good job in that, and I think that... Uh, you know, who knows whether they can run or not, but I think it's a thorough, thorough group, and I think that they'll be be seen, uh, you know, dirt and turf. Yeah, well, fingers crossed that they turn out to be good. Um, before we move on, you, you mentioned the vetting process that you say perhaps, uh, you know, they're too stringent in terms of what they look for. Are there certain things that you say, you know, I don't mind as much or I can train them th- through it, I'd rather just, you know, have an athletic looking horse and like you said, a, a clean scope and that's good enough for me. Well, I mean, we look at the x-rays, but I mean, you know, I don't know that we ultrasound it. Uh, any of, of Joe Allen's, I mean, some other outfits that they do ultrasound, but, um, you know, I think that, you know, I was sort of raised my whole life on, you know, with on homebred with the Fitzes and Janney, and uh, you know, just take what you got. <laughs> you know, there wasn't any sculpting or X-laying or anything that went on at Claiborne Farm, and they raised them to be to be racehorses and did a great job of doing that. And you know, but what we got, what we got. You know, if they were crooked, they were crooked. If they had a splint, they had a splint. Um, you know, obviously a little bit more now with the OCDs and stuff you're taking a look at if they're, you know, <clears throat> sort of sort of obvious and they're stifle or the hawk or something, then we'll take care of that, um, you know, at Claiborne. But, but like I say, it was, that came along a little bit later on. Um, but so, you know, I just always had the attitude is I'm gonna, I'll take what you send me. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a luxury now to know that the horse does scope clean. Um, and also, you know, they don't have multiple, uh, you know, they don't have anything wrong going in, um, through the x-rays and that kind of stuff that you do at the sale. And, you know, and with the two-year-olds, it's sort of the same thing. You get to see how they move on the track and, um, doesn't really matter to me how fast they show uh, here. Most of the stuff I've bought two-year-old-wise, I've bought off Nile Brennan. Um, you know, well, we keep a lot of two-year-olds up there in Ireland, and he his emphasis is, isn't on going as fast as they can go. Um, you know, until they have got that we bought up, start Kathleen No. Um, she came from him, and you know, she she didn't have a real fast work, a decent work, uh, but a big, nice filly. And so that's a little bit of my thinking of all, about all that. I mean, you know, we, you know, the heart scans and all that kind of stuff is all, you know, something that we haven't really done at the sale. Um, we do do them. They do 
look at their hard stuff at Niles, you know, about this time of the year, maybe in February, just to give some give give them some sort of an idea. But uh, in my thinking that uh, if they were mine, I probably wouldn't do it. See, it's a really interesting thing because I actually agree with you. Uh, about the two-year-old works I, I worked for a breaking and two-year-old breezing outfit back in Europe and I know in Europe it's coming up more now people are you know looking at times a lot more but in general it's always been about how is the horse moving you know what is their type what are they capable of doing are they an athlete and it doesn't mean you have to be the fastest breezer as long as you have you know a decent enough time there's still so much development that you you know, can do with that horse and that horse can so much grow still. So I kind of agree with that, which I liked. You highlighted your son being involved at the sale. Now, I was going to ask you about Reeve, who I know started training. I'm assuming at the sale you might have meant Chip because I do believe he works for Keenan, right? Yeah, but this was Reeve that was doing okay. that. I mean, he was just going, after he got done training in the morning, he was going with <laughs> David Priest, um, who's a veterinarian to, uh, um, uh, around, you know, just short listing them for us. And, um, you know, and then some of them that don't look like they'll do in New York, but will do in Kentucky and where around where he races will, you know, go to him too. It's not going to be a kind of a one man show. So, uh, no, it was Reed. Yeah. Well, t- talk to me a little bit about, that partnership because in 2020 he started running horses under his own name how proud of a moment was that for you well it's something he wanted to do you know that from an early age and um you know it was you know even always working for me and i was going to miss him but it was the time it was sort of time for him to get started uh i felt like he was ready to get started um, you know, I think that he was in sort of the same way I was when I got started. I thought I knew everything and I didn't know a whole lot. Um, you had to start pulling the trigger yourself and, you know, but, uh, he's had, you know, I think he's <clears throat> learned a lot in that respect. And, uh, you know, he's had a lot of ups and he's had ups and downs, which we all have had. And, uh, you know, I think he's really starting to put it together now. And, um, you know, I think he, he is enjoying sort of being on the Kentucky Tampa circuit over the winter. He's been the most, he's a Lexington guy and he likes Lexington. And I think he's enjoying his time just staying around there and then making the odd trip to Tampa where he's got a very good assistant down there. And, uh, so I'm, I'm very proud of his, his success and, it's a lot harder on me to watch one of his run than it is to watch one of mine run. Especially when they start backing up. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, I think he's got a big future in front of him. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to see the success that he's had. Yeah, you mentioned he's a Lexington guy. I know that you were born in Lexington yourself, of course. You know, prime horse country in, in the U.S. I remember my first time there. I was very impressed with you know, the grass, the farms, it's just, it's quite historic and a, and a beautiful spot. So anyone listening, I'd highly recommend people paying a visit to Lexington. Now, Shug, you've developed five Hall of Fame champions, aside from, of course, being inducted in the Hall of Fame uh, yourself. Let's start with perhaps 
you know, one of my favorites. Uh, I dare say she was quite special to you as well, a personal ensign. She, you know, she remained unbeaten throughout her career, but it wasn't without ups or downs. Uh, I think, was it right after one of the first works after she won, the the great one, Frisette, uh, she fractured um, a pattern in her left hind leg. Tell me a little bit about what was going on then and, and how tough was that on you? Well, she, you're exactly right. She had won the Frisette and we were getting her ready to go to Hollywood Park running the Breeders' Cup. And um, I worked her that morning. It was a cold morning in Belmont, and she worked fantastic. And, you know, the, the her main race was an easy race, but the present she had to run. So I think she finally kind of learned a little bit about ha- about running. And when I came back and worked her to go out there, it was, you know, something fantastic. And, you know, I watched her walk for a little while. I just went over to my office and uh, – my assistant, Buzzy Tenney, for years came over and said, you better come look at this. And, um, you know, obviously at that time, she by that time she was lame. And, um, you know, if we knew we x-rayed it, we saw the split in the pattern. And, you know, I called Dr. Bramlage, and uh, he was going to come up there and, and operate on her. And he got, he got called to California on a horse that was probably going to be you know, they didn't get it done real quick. It was going to be a catastrophe. And um, so um, they came in and operated on them. And I was in California for the Breeders' Cup. And when I got back, Dr. Reed, who had a clinic across the streets where they operate on, on her, and he came and he told me, he said, that filly's going to be all right. I said, what do you mean she's going to be all right? He said, no, she, she'll race again. And I had no idea. Uh, we were just saving her for a broodmare as far as I was concerned. And then, uh, so I pr- promptly got on the phone to Bramlage and he said, well, he said, Shook, she ain't going to hurt that pastor. said, she might hurt something else. But she ain't going to hurt that one. And we gave her the time and uh, brought her back and she won. You know, that was, you know, she started back in September of her three-year-old year and she won her only four starts that year. And the, and the Breeders' Cup was late that year in Hollywood. Like the, I tell you, I made a mistake. We were going to Santa Anita with her for a two-year-old year, and um, the, the Breeders' Cup was late in Hollywood Park. Uh, they didn't run it till like the third week or something. And Mississippi's and myself both were in agreement that maybe it'd be the best thing just to pass it, pass it, and give it some time, give her some time, and. Uh, that's what we did and uh, brought her back train, gave her a little time, brought her back train in Gulfstream and she came out and she won. I couldn't get a race to go for in the spring so I had to run her, I ran her in a shoe which was a grade one at the time and um, she won that and then the rest was sort of history. I mean, her record speaks for itself but what was it like to try and, and kind of get her back after an injury? What was she like to train? Would she allow you to kind of take it easy with her? Or was she very much kind of, you know, wanting to get things done? Well, that was one of the things about her. She'd do what I wanted her to do, you know. And uh, so we, you know, we started her back, I don't know, first of April or something. And I started doing a little something with her in July. And, uh I kind of got her ready to run at uh, Saratoga, and 
you know, we were acclimating or some as we went along just to make sure there wasn't any changes um, and what was going on. There never was. And, you know, I found out, I said, well, you better work her out of the gate. So I worked her out of the gate up there on the main track. And um girl that got on her worked her and then the kid that was next to her <laughs> was a very good rider and a very good uh, good orphan named Bob Witham, an English guy. Came back and, uh, you know, I said, how'd you go? And he said, oh, I went real good. But he said, who was that beside me? He didn't know. You know, and then uh, he said, she went really good. And, you know, then we got her back to the race. I had to run her. She was a two other than. I had to run her in a three other than. And she won. Uh, so she's still eligible for three other than. And, um, she won that again, that, and then they used to have a race up there called for straight three-year-old fillies called a rare perfume going a flat mile, which worked perfect and, uh, ran her in there and she won. Then we ran her in the Beldane, um, which was a grade one at Belmont and, um, she won that. And then that's when we put her away and then she came back and won, she won the Shuvie and the Hempstead and the, uh, Molly Pitcher, the Whitney, uh, Beldame, and uh, Breeders' Cup. I mean, that was an in- incredible you- year for her and, of course, for you. I'd love to discuss that final race of her career, the Breeders' Cup Distaff, where, you know, that was quite the race. She ended up besting, later on, fellow Hall of Famer winning colors. Winning colors had just become the third filling history to win the Kentucky Derby. And... Winning colors put a lot of sort of real estate between herself and the field. And I was watching this race back the other day. Personal Ensign did not give up fighting right until through the wire. And it was a muddy track as well. Talk me through that race and perhaps also a little bit of the events leading up to it. Were you nervous going into it? Well, I mean, she had done really well. She came out of the Bell Dame really good. You know, we got the, got the Louisville and everything was going good. Came up. You know, as you say, kind of a funny day and a funny track. And, um, you know, I don't think she ever really kind of kind of got a hold of it till maybe the last part of it. And, you know, I mean, things weren't going good really till the whole race till the finish line. And um, so, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, my hope for draining as we went along. And, um, but she was able to get up and beat a very good filly and winning colors and goodbye halo with Kentucky Oaks filly was third. So, you know, it was kind of a sigh of relief because that was going to be her last race. You had hate for her to go through, through all that. And then, uh, you know, get beat, but it didn't happen. And, uh, you know, then she went on to be a very good broomer. Oh, she did indeed. Where, where were you watching the race from? Did you have a spot at Churchill Downs? Well, I was up in the stands with a friend of mine, and, uh, you know, I know at the three-eighths pole, I looked at him, and I said, eh, you know, maybe not today, and then next thing I know, here, you know, here she comes. So it was just up in the stands at Churchill. And well, was... I usually don't go. I don't really know why I was up there, but I was. Wait, you usually don't go? You mean that you don't go and watch the races in person? Well, I'll watch it somewhere on TV or something. I'll be there, but I won't. I used to watch everything in the track maintenance guy's office. Why is it? Is that a superstition thing or nerves? 
No, but just to get up there in the stands on those big days at Churchill is not that easy to move around. So even in the old days, I don't know now with all the new stuff that I'd even be able to know where to go and and come down. But, you know, I mean, I know when I won the Oaks there, I won three, and we watched them all three in that room. And when I won the Derby, it was the same thing. I watched in the same room with uh, my wife and two sons. And uh, just kind of easier. It's in the tunnel right there as you go out to the track. And I can see it better on TV with all that's going on, you know, on those big days at uh, Churchill. I can see it a lot better. It must also be nice to, yeah, watch it in sort of peace and quiet to really see exactly how the race is unfolding now this was also i do believe your first breeders cup win am i correct in that yes so emotion wise with her with personal ends and everything she'd already done throughout the year knowing it's her last race and also it being your first breeders cup victory as a trainer what was you know what was going through your mind well, I mean, uh, you know, obviously all the emphasis was on her winning, but it was also my first Breeders' Cup winner, and it was Mr. Phipps's first Breeders' Cup winner. So there was a lot of things that sort of went together with with that race. I mean, she was a homebred. Uh, he owned the mare. They owned the stallion. Uh, he was raised at Claiborne where, you know, all the horses were raised and still are. And, um, you know, so it was uh, – you know, his family was there, and um, so it was obviously, you know, there was a lot of, lot of things that went into to what happened that day, and, um, you know, it was it was quite a thrill and a lot of fronts, one being that you won, and the other was that it was his first Breeders' Cup and it was my first Breeders' Cup, and it was sort of a family affair for, for the Fitz family. Yes, and it was quite the day, especially because, you had just recently began to train for Mr. Ogden Phipps, right? 1986, I believe. Yeah. So it was two years. Um, you know, I got her when she was two year old. Maybe that might've been my first crop I had. And, uh, you know, I remember girls getting on her all the time, kept telling me she could really run. I said, she goes a half and 50. She said she goes a half and 50 like no other horse goes a half and 50. She was right. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. What What does she mean to you, personal ensign? I know you've trained many champions, many Hall of Famers, but she must surely be one no, of the anyway, I was young at the time. Um, you know, I mean, I got this. I got this big job with the Phipses, you know, and I wanted to prove myself and uh, to get – um, I mean, as you know, that's a career maker mm-hmm. you get a horse like that. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's brought up, she's brought up all, a lot, just like it's been brought up this morning. Um, you know, so that's all been, that's all been fun for me and, um, kind of relive a lot of it through interviews such as this, um, you know, makes it that much more, um, inviting than, uh, you know, you just rested on it all the time, but it's, uh, you know, obviously she was, she was a horse of a lifetime and, um, maybe there'll be another one down the line that I'll get to pull the trigger on, but it ain't going to be easy to find one like her. 
I mean, yeah. there's been a, a couple of very talented runners that you've nurtured after her, but she, yeah, she, she definitely was uh, something special. And that's for me just being a bystander now talking about it, well, over 30 years later. So I think you're kind of correct there in, in saying that she was the one that perhaps got it, got it all going. And of course, as you highlighted as well, that relationship with uh, the Phipps's being able to get going so quickly and then to continue in the way you did. I mean, would you be able to characterize how, you know, what that has meant for you and your relationship with them and your career? Well, the one thing about it is Mr. Phipps and Denny Phipps were two of the greatest people that ever walked faces earth. And, you know, I mean, obviously working for the Phipps family has been, you know, very rewarding to me and, uh, and what I've been trying to do. And, um, you know, they left you alone. They were, they were not only great professionally, but they were personally too. Um, you know, I, I probably think about both of them every day. Um, you know, obviously having success helps with all that. Um, if you don't have success, they might not look at you in the same light as, uh, they would when, when you do, but, uh, you know, there's nothing I can say more about the relationship that I had with, with those two people, um, you know, probably it means more to me to have known and to work and to have a personal relationship with those two people is, you know, is the same as being with my, you know, with my family, with my wife and my two kids and, um, all that went into all that. That's what, that's what they meant to me. And, you know, obviously working for them this long, they've pretty much made my whole life. And, um, you know, through the horses is how, how all that came, you know, came to be. And, um, you know, the success that we had was a big thrill for me to be able to see them enjoy it as much as they did enjoy it. And, uh, Mr. Phipps, you know, when he could probably came to the barn five or six mornings a week and not seven. Wow. Um, he enjoyed his horses that much, you know, when we were in New York, not in Florida, but when we were at Payson park, he would come out there some, some, when we were at Palm beach downs and had the babies there, he would come down there some and enjoyed, uh, he enjoyed every minute of it. I mean, Denny was busier than him. So he wasn't there quite as much, but like at Belmont, he would be there on the weekends. He would come out and watch them. But, uh, you know, when you talk to Mr. Phipps on the phone, he talked, talked and talked and talked about the horses. When you talk to Denny on the phone two minutes later, he was gone. So, uh, but, you know, we did a lot of things, uh, personally too. I mean, to, you know, say we both, we all enjoyed sort of the same thing that we like to fish some and like to play golf. And, um, you know, so we did things, uh, together that way uh, also that it was fun for me to be able to see some different aspects of life that maybe I wouldn't have been able to see if I wasn't connected with them. Well, that sounds like an incredible relationship on, on all fronts. Uh, I wanted to continue by talking about some of these great horses that you trained uh, in their name, developed for them. Uh, the next one being Easy Goer, of course, uh, another Hall of Famer, uh, champion two-year-old. 
uh, incredible Belmont Stakes victory, besting, uh, what was it, American Horse of the Year, Sunday Silence. Uh, what was he like? Because he came, I think about two, he developed two years after uh, Personal Ensign. He was a three-year-old in 89 when, so he would have been two-year-old in 87. So yeah, he, you know, he was pretty special from the start. Um, beautiful, beautiful horse, uh, out of a great mare that Mr. Phipps raced and relaxing. Out of a great, out of a great Calumet race horse and Ali Dar, who was off the great start as a stud also. And when he came in there, he was special from, day one and first time I ran him he got beat that day rode him I told him I said he probably won't break good might need one but we need I wanted to run him before we went to Saratoga and you know he, he just got beat came running just got beat and then uh when I ran him back at Saratoga he won very easy and ran very fast going seven eights um didn't run him back to allowance race at uh Belmont, and then he really proved himself to me. He was back and finished split horses, you know, pad day roll, a typical pad day race. And uh, it all worked out really, really good to where it was a great learning experience for him also. And then he won the cabin in the Champagne, and he went to the Breeders' Cup and um, as a two-year-old was a big favorite. Finished second on a track that he, that he probably didn't like. Mm-hmm. Um when it was a cold, rainy day and the thing got slick and I don't think he ever really saw the same track he ran on in the Derby when he was second. But, um, you know, then we gave him some time and uh, I brought him back down here and, you know, he won this way away off. And I remember training him, getting him ready and I thought maybe he'd gotten ahead of me a little bit. Um, I think the swale then was the middle of March and, he won that really easy, and he came back and won the Gotham, um, going a mile at Aqueduct, and ran a fifth of a second off the world record. Um, then he won the Wood, um, you know, which is something you really don't see anymore. A horse has run, you know, three, four times before the Derby, but mm-hmm. he was, you know, he he could handle all that, and then. Um, you know, then he was second in the Derby on a track I didn't think he really cherished, but a very, very good horse beat him in Sunday Silence. And with a very good trainer, with an old master and a young kid that was trying to trying to do something maybe he wasn't ready to do. But, um, you know, then we came back in the Preakness, and even though he got beat in those um, by Sunday Silence, you know, I was very pleased with, the way he ran, um, I knew we were in the ball game then, you know, after the Derby, you know, I was kind of thinking, is he good enough or is that four or five lengths better or three lengths better? And, uh, the previous proved to me that he, that that wasn't true. And then, you know, we got back to Belmont, uh, running out of our, out of our own, uh, barn. He loved Belmont racetrack, you know, that big, big racetrack with the big turns which probably favored us over Sunday silence where he liked those quick turns and got around them very well. And, uh, you know, we were able to win the Belmont and, you know, everybody kept asking me, he said, well, well, are you trying to break up winning a triple crown? I said, that's not at all what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to win the Belmont. 
Yeah. And uh, that was something that's never crossed my mind before or after. Um, you know, I was just pleased with, you know, and everything went right for us those three weeks. Sunday silence, Eric, you know, he, he kicked Mr. Whittingham in the head, which it didn't have anything to do with him, but it's, you know, it's in racing, everything needs to go right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then he went back to the West Coast and, and won, and we stayed on the East Coast and won, and we got to look, we got down here to, to Gulfstream, and when we drew, we drew the inside, and he drew the outside, and the press conference, you know, Mr. Whittingham said, well, I think I might have got the best of shows on the draw, and I think he was exactly right. We kind of, coming across the chute there, we stumbled a little bit, got out of position uh, somewhat, but got back in position going down the backside. And uh, I remember Chris McCarron telling me that he said, I could hear somebody coming down the backside, and I didn't have to look over my shoulder and see who it was. I knew who it was. And, um, you know, he went on and opened up on us in the turn, and we just ran out of room in the stretch and got beat up got beat a neck and um but it was you know that was another career maker but it was also the whole process was was a huge thrill uh to me and you know mr whittingham could not have been any better in the way he treated me and that he treated the rivalry um than, than anybody could be he was that much of a gentleman through the whole thing i mean those kind of rivalries between two incredible, like outstanding horse, probably, you know, best of their generation. That's what makes horse racing so much fun. That's what gets everyone involved. So I'm always kind of grateful when, when you see these horses go at it and being so, you know, closely in their abilities that they're sort of taking turns or narrowly beating one another. And yes, unfortunately, I guess, unfortunately for, you know, everyone wanting to see another triple crown winner, Easy Goer was the one that, prevented that from happening from Sunday silence but like you said as a trainer you're in it to win the race and and not you know you're not looking at anything else but as you already highlighted of course you know that's you also have that responsibility to your owners and and to everyone involved otherwise why would even be in the race right exactly no exactly it was uh you know it was my first classic winner and Mr. Phipps's first classic winner so it was uh you know, like I say, the whole thing was a uh, was a, <clears throat> was a huge thrill, and um, you know, then we went on went on from there, and it was you know it was great fun to be able to compete in those kind of races, and you know, then get to the ultimate and be able to compete uh, with a great against a great horse in Sunday Sounds with a great horse as Easy Gore, and you know, was was undoubtedly one of the greatest trainers that ever lived. Uh, Charlie Whittingham was like, you know, as I've always said, so I said why couldn't somebody else have had that horse? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was a young 37, 38-year-old guy that was trying to, you know, trying to figure this whole thing out. You mentioned that, you know, Mr. Whittingham was so kind to you throughout that rivalry. Did you ever, you know, get any advice from him or, you know, just talk about, you know, what was going on in general? Not really any advice, Naomi, but I mean, you know, we would have conversations. I mean, one of the things that um, that I always look back on was the 88 Breeders' Cup. I was walking back 
after the, the uh, classic to seeking the gold and finish second in to Ali Sheba, and it was dark, and it was cold, and it was sleeting, sort of. And I'm walking back on the track uh, around the turn there at Churchill, going back to the barn, and I kind of had my head down a little bit. Um, but personal incident one, Easy Gore had been second. Seeking the gold had been second and uh, in the classic. And, you know, I heard somebody behind me say, hey, kids, what kind of day did you have? And I said, I'll win one with a couple of seconds and maybe a no good. And he looked and I heard him say, you had a good day. And I looked back and it was him, you know. And I've always looked, I've always thought about that um, because sometimes, you think maybe things didn't go quite that good, but they did go that good, you know. And so I've always remembered, I've always remembered uh, him saying that. <clears throat> and the other thing that I've always thought about is when I got into the Hall of Fame, Wayne Lucas gave the uh, the speech that day, and in his speech he said, "You can't be afraid to lose." And that's another thing that I've all the two biggest things that I've always thought back on were those two converse, conversations um, by two of the greatest guys that trainers that ever did it. You know, I mean, that's that's indeed quite quite some you know advice or something to to think about. You know, having a good or a bad days perhaps based also on your own perception the fact that yours is still ran so well you know running second and yeah I mean as a trainer I think nowadays people you know if you're hitting at 20% you're doing very very well but that also means that four out of five you lose so you know how how do you deal with that that must be you know a, a continuous learning curve even for someone that has trained for so long as you have well, the bad part about it was when I first started and stuff, I used to blame myself. Um, you know, I, if I got beat and there was something I did wrong, uh, and that still could be true. <clears throat> but I've learned through the years that um, if they go over there and run their race and they get beat, you know, maybe the maybe a better horse beat them. Um, and I'll still, somebody asked me, you know, today, do you like your horse in the fourth race? I'll say, if he's good enough, I think he's got a big chance. So I think that you have to learn to um, uh, take the losing, which is not fun. Uh, but, you know, in racing today, too, a lot of times, um, you know, you have to you have to realize that maybe the horse might need a race or he's going to need more racing or I mean, I ran a horse here the other day out of a mare called Abaco. Uh, Abaco, I think it took her eight or nine tries to break her maiden, and she ended up being, you know, multiple greatest stakes winner. Once she won, she was great. And then, um, you know, I ran another. So I, my idea, you know, really the only offspring she's had is the horse I've got, the, the horse I've got here called Baker's Bay, and it's taken him. Not that he's a top horse, but he's a very nice horse, but it's taken him a while to kind of come around. He's still running at six. Um, so after the race, I just had to think that, well, maybe it t maybe it's just going to take this horse four, five, six starts before the bell, go bell goes off. 
And, um, you know, that's what I think. So I can't take the losing um, that hard. I have to try to think through what maybe the process is going to be. And then earlier in the day, I won a maiden race with the filly that had run once in, in New York and run fair. I liked her. Beautiful filly. Great pedigree. I thought she was probably running a little short, seven and a half on the turf. Uh, and I thought maybe she was a race away and she won. So, you know, it kind of works in, in uh, both respects. But I came up with Frank and David Whiteley, and I remember Frank Whiteley telling me one day, said to me, he said, boy, you like this, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do like it. He said, well, I'm going to tell you what, I tried to discourage my son from doing it. And because he said, I'm going to tell you, for every good thing that happens, there's going to be about 20 bad ones that happen. And, you know, he's about right. I mean, you know, you you took it as four out of five lose. Well, if you, if you lost four out of five football games, you ain't going to be there very long. But True. that's sort of the process here. I mean, yeah. Did, did you, what he was saying, trying to discourage his son because of, you know, a lot of downs compared to only a couple of really high moments. Did you tell Reeve that as well? Is that something that you tried to pass along? Yeah, but I never discouraged him from doing what he wanted to do. Um, and that, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure in our conversations that, you know, I've repeated that, <laughs> repeated that stuff and he's heard, heard me say it. And even, even now in training, you know, when he gets discouraged and one of them gets hurt or something that, you know, I said, I have to, you know, I'll tell him, I said, listen, Reed, that's part of it. You know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not the easy part of it, but, you know, if one of them gets a chip in their ankle or something, you take it out and, uh, chances are they're going to be okay or they get a, a little fracture in their cannon bone. You put a couple screws in it and give them the time and, you know, hopefully they're going to come back. You know, it's something, it's something, <laughs> it's something that's going to happen. It's not the good part of it, but but way I've always felt if they can come back, um, you know, then we just have to wait for them to come back. Yeah, well, they're, they're incredibly. But you don't want to listen to all I got to say anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to talk about a couple more of your Hall of Fame champions. I mean. There's been so many. It's been five of them. Uh, you were talking about the training process. Perhaps that is uh, one good example for how you developed Lure as he started out on the main track and ended up becoming an incredible turf runner, reading, winning two British Cup miles in 1992-1993. What was it like for you to kind of go, hey, we're going to try something else with him and him then showing you that you were right in doing so? Uh, something going on out there behind me. Yeah, get this stopped. Look, that's gone now. Lure was a very fast horse and very, very good athlete. And he, uh, let's see, he, you know, he won. He both made his first start, and then he won a lounge race and then he won the Gotham in a dead heat in a very funny race where it looked like he was going to win by many. And he got to jumping up and down kind of from shadows at Aqueduct in the spring and ended up dead heat. And then I ran him back in the, um, what is now the Woody Stevens, which I think was the Reaver Ridge at that time. And he didn't run any good. And, um, so, 
uh, Saratoga was going to be kind of right around the corner, and I took him up to Saratoga. was in the back of my mind, and I trained him on the grass up there. At that time, we could train five days a week on the grass, and so that was what my plan was. I got him up there, and, uh, you know, he belonged to Claiborne and Mr. Perry, and Seth was up there, and he was getting ready to leave. It was the first weekend, and uh, he came around before he left to go back home, and you know, he said, Chug, all your horses look good, but lure, he doesn't look good. And I said, well, I agree with you. And I said, give me a chance to train him here on the grass and we'll see what happens. So when I started that, I could see him coming and coming and coming, um, you know, the whole time. And when I got him back to Belmont, um, I ran him. I think he was maybe two or three other than time or something. I ran him. And he won. Uh, on the grass and he ran really good and he ran really fast and he was on the lead and the handicap was also he couldn't you know he can't win on the lead down here and then I ran him back in uh, Kelso and I think he was second and took I brought him to Gulfstream and so I got him over in the paddock that day you know I'm looking at him in the paddock I'm seeing him in a barn all the time or with a blanket on him, cooling out or in a stall or this or that. And I looked at him, I said, my God, I said, you know, I said, I don't know until this day that I've ever presented a horse that looked as well as he did. And we drew an inside post and I told Mike Smith, just take advantage of the inside post. And, you know, he ran, ran great. I think he ran, might have set the track record and, you know, it wasn't, wasn't pretty easy. So, um, the transition to the race was to try to get him, I mean, to the turf, to just trying to get him back to where I thought he needed to be. And, you know, and it worked. I mean, yeah, it certainly worked indeed. It's, I guess it's also about being able to change course, right? When you were discussing about, you know, trying something different and the way he was looking and the way he was training that as a trainer, you have to be able to be, flexible in your decisions and perhaps change your mind sometimes? Well, I think you have to. You have to change your mind and you have to, you, you know, you can't be afraid to be wrong. Um, you know, and a lot of times you are, but when it works, it works. And, you know, it obviously worked with him and, um, you know, it's worked with some others too, point of entry for one to, to bring out. You know, he broke his maiden on the dirt, but, you know, he's a I think he won five or six grade ones on the turf. But, um, you know, sometimes you just have to, um, you have to use your imagination a little bit, but you also have to just use a gut instinct to where, you know, let's give this a try and see if it works. And, you know, with with that horse, it worked. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, the horse, maybe I'll start him out on the turf, um, um, Pine Island, who was who won the Alabama, and the Gazelle won two two Grade One stakes, and second the Mother Goose, second the Coaster Club. She broke her maiden here, first start on the turf. Um, so you know it was just sometimes it's a gut feeling on what you see and how they train, and the other is you know maybe pedigree a little bit. Yeah, and and to to finish things off, talking about your incredibly 
talented runners that you've developed. There were two fillies that came up uh, in the same year. They were bo- both born in 1991. That's, of course, inside information and, and heavenly prize. I do believe they ended up meeting later on in their career. I think it was British Cup Distaff where you ended up running a, a 1-2 with an inside information, of course, winning by, I think, 13 and a half length. What was it like to have two incredibly talented female runners, you know, same age in your barn for the Phipses, and then well, they both ended up being Hall of Famer. So you did you did well in trying to you know either keep them apart and basically campaigning them to what suited them best. Well, I'll tell you one thing about them too: they both both broke their maiden the same day. The two-year-old of fall they split the race. Um, well, I, <laughs> to, to laugh, I wish they'd split the Breeders' Cup that year, but they didn't. <laughs> so we had had the two and. Um, you know, I mean, inside information and had an incredible year. The only time she got beat, she stumbled leaving the gate and, uh, uh, the Philly uh, Jerkins and Julie Road, uh, classy Mirage, uh, beat her. We just couldn't catch her. And, um, you know, then she went on and won the rough end and the spinster and, um, and the Breeders' Cup to where Heavenly Prize had gone through the two races at, uh, Saratoga. The long ones, I think now they're the goal for wand and uh, stuff like that, but it's maybe the Chuby and the, um, uh, then the other one was the John Morris, which is a personal incident now. Yeah. And um, then she came back and was second to Serena's song in the Bell Dame. That's when I took, I was able to split them up and take inside information to the spinster. And, um, you know, then we both ran them both in the, uh, Breeders' Cup um, came up on off-track. Inside information, loved the off-track. Mike Smith, she broke. He sent her to the lead pretty quick. Um, and I don't think Evelyn Prize was quite as good on off-track. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was what maybe separated them, separate them. I mean, both of them are obviously very, very good fillies, both in the Hall of Fame. And, uh, uh, you know, it was it was a special time to have those two two together and for them both to be able to have the the years and the careers that they had yeah absolutely and of course extra special as well that again it was with these you know homebreds for in the phipps name and and colors i mean it was just uh, so much more to come in terms of the Hall of Famers that you developed for them, and of course, champions uh, as well. I want to kind of jump ahead because I know I've had you on for quite a bit as well. I just kind of want to finish off talking about, um, you know, you've secured the Kentucky Derby in 2013, a race that had eluded you for, you know, a lengthy period of time. Could you tell me about that day and, and your thoughts kind of going into the race? Well, um, <laughs> Then again, it rained, and um, I, I had a lot of confidence, Naomi. I mean, that horse had really run good down here this that winter at Gulfstream um, and went into Fountain Hughes in the Florida Derby, won a lounge race before that on a racetrack that probably didn't really favor his running style. And, you know, he just – everything happened the right way all winter uh, when I need to breeze him. You know, I didn't have to wait uh, because of track conditions or anything of that such. And when we 
moved to Kentucky, you know, everything again went uh, exactly right. Um, you know, I thought going into the race that, you know, that that if he got beat, it was just going to be a better horse beating. And um, so that week was uh, especially fun, you know, to have the favorite for the Derby. Um, you know, every place you went was kind of a recognizable event, and um, we all had fun doing it. Race day, um, race day, well, and to be able to have a horse for for the Janney and the Phipses together, uh, you know, made it that much more, uh, you know, enjoyable on both respects, um, having the horse and being able to win for both those families was something that was very special, um, uh, and be very special to me for years, you know, for the rest of, rest of my time. Uh, but that day was kind of an interesting day that, um, when I got back to the hotel, I was a little bit nervous and Allison had a friend coming over to meet her. And there was a, so I told her, I said, I'm going to get dressed and go back to the bar and I'll be more comfortable there. And so she, she went over on her own and it's never, um, never really a problem. And, um, in that respect, then it rains and, but then we get over there and, uh, everything went right. And, uh, you know, like I say, I was watching in that maintenance room with, the with, uh, with her and my two sons and I was watching on TV and, you know, when the running started and when Joel pushed the button, you know, I just said to myself, I said, I, you know, I don't know what he's going to win or not, but they don't know he's in there. And, uh, you know, for him to win, um, you know, not only for us, uh, it was a huge thrill, uh, but it was also a huge thrill to be able to do it for the Jannies and the Phippses. Uh, neither one of them or their families had won the Derby. Um, and we, you know, we had a lot of fun with it. It was, uh, it was just, you know, it was just sort of the thrill of a lifetime um, that, you know, I'd hoped my whole career something like that would happen, and when it finally did happen, and you know, like Lynn Whiting told me the next day, he said, it won't ever wash off, and that's the truth. Was it some form of relief to, to get that mm-hmm. win, to get the Kentucky Derby victory on board? Oh, well, sure, you know, I mean, it's, you know, I, I'm the kind that, that I don't really show a lot of excitement because I kind of build myself up and then when it's over, it's sort of, uh, you know, thank God it's over. Um, and, you know, I'd always thought that, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to win the Derby early so I didn't have to worry about it anymore. But I don't think that after it was over with, I, I rethought that. And I think I don't know that you would appreciate it as much um, having to wait um, and winning it now than if you'd have won it early and then, thing because you know the first one's just the bait you know then you want then you want to win it again and that's the truth i mean yeah that, i i can imagine if you when you've been in the industry for that long seeing that race having runners in it and and to keep going through without the win to then finally get it on board must taste extra extra sweet now i've final couple of questions that don't actually 
have that much to do with any of the horses uh, that you train, but much more so with you. If it wasn't for horse racing and, and you becoming a trainer, would you have any idea what you might have become? This is a bit more sort of a tongue-in-cheek fun question. Well, the, the, the two things that I really enjoyed when I was growing up is, uh, you know, I, I fished a lot around Kentucky and down and in Florida with my father, so I had a huge interest in that. So whether it would have led to some sort of a career and doing something like that, and the other was, uh, you know, I grew up playing golf and, um, you know, I never was good enough to play professionally and I never would have, but I could have possibly done something uh, in that respect, but I think it would have always been something outside. You know, I don't know that I would ever really cared about sitting in a room and looking at a uh, typewriter and then after the typewriter, the computer for all day, five days a week or whatever. But uh, I think it would have been something where I was doing something outdoors. Yeah, I, I get that. I spend, I think, about eight years of my life being an exercise writer because I didn't want to be stuck behind a computer inside. Yeah. Uh, final question, perhaps looking back on, you know, your career. Of course, it's not over at all just yet. Um, what is it that you, looking back on, are most proud of? And what would you like people to perhaps remember you by in terms of, you know, what you've achieved? Now, like I said, we're not done yet, but thus far. Well, I think I would hope that they respect the way I did it. Um, you know, and the, the success I had, especially with, um, you know, with homebreds, I know I was sitting on a kind of something at the Breeders' Cup and with, with Bafford and Mark Cassie. And, you know, when Bafford was the one that said, he said, you know, what Shug's done, he's done it all with homebreds. He said, I got to go pick mine out. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I think that, and the other is, you know, the relationships that I have been able to establish, as you heard me talk about the Fitzes and Mr. Janney's, I feel the same way about, um, you know, and I hope that they respect me as much as I respect them. And I hope that the game respects me and what we've done as much as I respect uh, the game and also the people that I've met and respect that are in the game, um, you know, they not only put their time and money in, but also, uh, you know, the media types that, um, you know, have tried to treat me with respect and have wrote, you know, the right kind of stuff instead of, you know, uh, turning their thumb down on me. So basically I just would like to have the respect from the game for, you know, the way I've tried to uphold myself and the way that I've tried to present my horses and in the way that they run also. Well, I must admit, I feel like that is certainly the case, very much respected and liked within the industry. Now, I'm relatively new to the American scene, but certainly everyone I've ever spoken to speaks very, very highly of you. So perhaps uh, in a way you've already achieved what you're hoping to set out. Shug, thank you so much for your time. I really, really enjoyed uh, talking with you, you know, listening to your stories, learning from your opinions, and uh, hopefully I'll get the chance to see you soon again in person. Okay, no, Bill, I enjoyed it too. Yes, I liked your questions and uh, I had fun talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for calling. 
probably not as much fun as I had listening to his stories about these greats like Personal Ensign, Easygoer, Lure. I, I mean, pff, the amount of champions that Shug has developed uh, absolutely blow my, blows my mind. I nearly didn't have time to cover them all here. I feel like we could do another podcast about two hours just talking about none of the Hall of Fame champions, but just the other champions that, that he's been involved with. So hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Aside from that, trying to think of a couple of updates, maybe my life updates. Of course, uh, 2022 now, we're going to be gearing up for the 147th running of the Preakness. Very, very excited. Love being back at Pimlico. And that Preakness week is just phenomenal. You know, seeing all the horses at track work, getting up at about 4 a.m. Look, I, I've done it nearly my entire life as an exercise rider getting up that early. But I'm not going to lie and say that I enjoy it because I don't. But for Preakness week, gladly make an exception. Now, uh, what else is new? Well, I've got another cat. <laughs> <laughs> I've got two now, um, Onyx and Aphrodite. And uh, yeah, well, they, they both uh, are nice and pesky and uh, keep us awake at night. Both were adopted, by the way. So everyone, absolutely go to your shelter and, and give uh, another animal a new lease on life because, look, I don't know why they're in the shelter in the first place. They're two incredibly sweet, gentle cats. And uh, I'm very, very happy to have them with me. So I think that's a, that's about it. Well, also got a snowstorm going on here in North Virginia. Um, I managed to dodge most of it, most of it, thankfully. Um, but unfortunately for us, it's Thursday, January the 6th right now. Do you believe we got another one planning on hitting us tonight? So uh, yeah, if you are uh, struggling with the snow, same as I do here, uh, stay safe, everyone. And uh, I don't know, get yourself a, a four-wheel drive truck. I'm not sure that's the only way we got out of the um, living room. So yeah stay safe everyone and uh see you again next week 